Hello, everyone, and welcome to Working in the Weeds, a podcast from the UF HIFA Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants. I'm your host, Jay Farrell, and as always, our co-host, Christine Krebs. Hi, everybody. So, Christine, why don't you unpack what we're doing here today? Yeah, so we get a lot of questions emailed in um, from the general public and also professionals in the field of invasive plant management. And sometimes these questions are outside of uh, the center's expertise. And so we typically forward these emails out to other experts within UF IFAS to kind of help us provide a well-rounded answer. And today we're going to kind of um, answer some of those common questions related to home gardens larger scale natural area invasive plant management, and then the waterfront property owners that have docks and also face invasive plant problems. So we're going to call in some friends today that have some more expertise behind these questions. And uh, yeah, hope that both of us learn a little something new today. Yeah, I've been doing this a long time, but we still get questions that stump us. So periodically, we need to reach out to our friend network, our, our colleagues, and get a little bit more information. So Christine, if you can, let's uh, go ahead and listen to the first uh, phone message. Hi, um, I just have a quick question. Uh, I recently built some new flower beds probably a couple of years ago in my yard, and I recently noticed some like new plants growing in it. I think they're called Chinese crown orchids. I don't know. My friend told me when she came out and looked at them. Um, I was just wondering where did these come from and if there's anything I can do about them. They're kind of growing all, of, all over the place, so I don't, I don't really know. But I was just hoping if you guys could give me some help. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Chinese crown orchid. It's one I've heard of. I don't think I've ever seen this plant. So I'm going to need to get some help. And uh, Chris Marble is a professor down at Mid-Florida REC in Apopka. He's been doing this type of work for a long time. UF employee, great weed scientist. So let's see if we can't get Chris on the phone to uh, get some help with this. Hello, this is Chris. Hey, Chris. Jay Farrell. Hey, how's it going? Good, man. Hey, you got a minute to help us with a question? Sure. So we had somebody call and leave us a message a week or so ago, and they think they have Chinese crown orchid. I've heard of this plant. I don't know what it is. So can you talk to us a little bit about what this person has going on? So she said she found it in a flower bed that was built a couple of years ago. Not real sure what it is, but wants to know what to do with it. So I've never seen this plant. Can you describe this thing so I can get back with her and help her? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Chinese ground orchid, it's a, it's an invasive uh, ground orchid, terrestrial orchid. Um, when you see it growing, typically what people will notice is, is a bulb-like structure that's typically pr- protruding through the ground. And if there's mulch there, it might be just kind of peeking through the mulch. You spread that mulch back and then you see that. And that's a pseudobulb. So that's, that's basically like a semi-above ground storage organ, essentially. And when the the orchid goes into flower, it'll send up long flower stalks that might have, you know, 10 or 12 different flowers on there. But the problem with it is it isn't invasive. So it's typically, it's, it's originally native to parts of Asia. When it gets here, it becomes pretty invasive and it spreads pretty quickly, especially for um, an orchid. And, you know, people think of orchids as being, you know, sometimes hard to grow. This is not hard to grow. This is one that's very easy to grow and will continue to, to spread. So, um, especially if it's in the flower bed, I'd recommend um, them to go in and start to remove that. There's not a lot of great herbicide options out there. Removing it by hand is really the, the best thing, um, especially if it's in a flower bed, because just about anything you use is going to injure the, the flowers. 
All right. So, so tell me, so tell me about that. So if they need to go in and remove it, can they just go in with their hands? Does it break off? Do they need to shovel it out? What does that part look like? Yeah. So it can be difficult to remove with, with your hands. So what I, what I typically recommend is using the shovel, making sure you remove the entire thing. Um, we've, we've done, we've played around with it a little bit and gone out and to collect some, to try to do some herbicide screening and stuff like that. And what we found works pretty well is to get one of those bulb planters. Um, that people will use to plant caladiums or, or whatever. Um, and you can go out and just put that around there. And instead of, you know, using it to plant a bulb, you're pulling the bulb out with that. And that will help you to kind of maneuver around um, different things in the flower beds and stuff as well. So you're not just going out there with a shovel and digging up, you know, a big section of it. All right. Well, that, that makes sense. Now, a- after they get it dug out, what do they do with it? I mean, can you just put it in a compost pile? Or, I mean, is it, is it pretty much gone after you get it dug up or do you need to do something more? It, yeah, you, I mean, it'd be in the trash. So you wouldn't want to put it in a compost just because it can survive that uh, and it'll continue to spread. So uh, not something to throw into a refuse pile or something like that into your yard or something because it will typically regrow. We had some that we dug up and collected and forgot about them, you know, for a week or so. And they were in uh, just sitting there in the lab and they, we didn't have any trouble getting them to, to grow back in the greenhouse after, um, you know, putting them back into a pot and everything. And so in a landscape situation, it's going to do the same thing. Uh, okay. So that just put it in a bag and put it in the in the trash going out to the landfill then. Yep. So where did this thing come from and how should she prevent them from coming in and invading again? So it's mostly speculation. We don't really know exactly where it came from. People are, are speculating that it came in and, and mulch products, uh, and that's how it's spreading. Uh, basically, it's it's growing, and then when they when they're harvesting the mulch and making processing the mulch and everything, either parts of that pseudo bulb or the seeds. Which the seeds, if you ever um, see it flower and actually produce seeds, the seeds are extremely small, very hard to collect, and so those could be. Um, in the mulch as well. That's probably how it's getting there um, is in the mulch and just in different soil amendments and things like that. As far as prevention, you know, there's not a great way to really prevent it. Um, You know, uh, just monitoring and especially if you've had it in the past, continue to check that. And what you want to do is remove it before, especially before it starts to flower. And you'll notice it real obvious when it starts to flower because it will have those long flower stalks. But continually looking at that area, making sure that it's not, you're not allowing it to continue to spread because it, it does spread fast, but it's not like, you know, some of these other invasive plants. It's one thing that can be uh, eradicated if somebody stays on top of it, especially in a small area like a, like a flower bed. So are there any lookalike plants we need to be watching for as well? Or how do you get this thing ID'd if you think you have it in your flower bed? So you could look up Chinese ground orchid, probably, uh, I mean, a great source of information is the Center for Aquatic Invasive Plants. They've got on the website, you know, there's a bunch of good photos there. And so you could um, check that out. You could also send it in to, to me. I can identify it. the UF herbarium uh, as another resource. Of, and then also to the, um, uh, if, it's, if it's in flower, a lot of those plant apps are pretty, um, you know, pretty accurate these days. They've really gotten a lot better over the last, I'd say, five years or so. So, you know, those are all different resources to identify and know what it is that you have. As far as lookalikes, there's a couple of other ground orchids and things like that that could be similar, but really it's pretty distinctive, especially when it's in flower. All right. So when I call this lady back, just go out there, dig them up. A shovel is good. 
don't throw them in a compost pile. So put them in the landfill, uh, bin going out to the landfill. And if you have questions on it, we can reach out to Extension or a lot of other resources. So um, is there anything else we need to know about this plant or other plants similar to it in the landscape scenario? So this is one thing that I, I see that I run into issues with a lot. So <clears throat> this is something to keep in mind. So when you're talking about a landscape situation, like a managed landscape with ornamental flower beds, et cetera, a lot of times what people end up doing is they go online and they find control recommendations for a lot of these invasive species um, and they, they'll list herbicides and things. And yes, those are, you know, the typical recommended herbicides for those plants, but you've got to look at where those herbicides are intended to be applied. So, you know, you might get great control and have, you know, good success in the natural area, but you take those same herbicides into a lawn or, you know, garden type situation, and they can be catastrophic in some cases in terms of plant injury. So um, that's something to keep in mind. With this particular plant, there's not really any great herbicide controls, period, but that's something to keep in mind when you're talking about invasive plants in the home landscape. So if you don't know what you're doing with a herbicide, get advice before you just start spraying. 100%. Excellent. Chris, thanks, man. I appreciate you answering the call today. Absolutely. Thank you all for calling. All right. So, Christine, I know we have a few more calls. Uh, what's the next one? Yeah, this one's related to larger scale invasive plant management. So those of you who probably have um, are property owners with um property larger than about an acre or two. And then, of course, these plant management professionals who are dealing with larger scale invasive plant management in these natural areas. Um, so the question is. Hi, so I have a 10 acre pasture that's partially wooded, but I'm starting getting a lot of coconut grass moving in. Can you tell me what I need to do to get rid of it? And also, are there any state programs to help pay for the removal? Thanks so much. Yeah, Kogan grass is one I've worked with some, but it is so super complicated. Uh, fortunately, we have Stephen Enlow uh, that is an expert and has published a lot with it. Stephen is a extension specialist with the center. He's also worked with this plant both in Florida and Alabama. So let's see if we can't get Stephen on the phone to walk through some of this about Kogan grass. Hi, this is Stephen. Hey, Stephen, this is Jay. Do you have a minute for a question? Hey, good morning. Absolutely, Jay. So we got a call from somebody that's got, you know, one of these 10-acre paddocks out uh, on the edge of town. They're starting to get Kogan grass moving in. They've got some trees on one part of it, and it seems to be sort of intermixed, we think. So what do we tell this person? How do you get started with this plant, and how do first do we know what do we need to tell them to make sure that it actually is Kogan grass to begin with? Yeah, sure. Tell them to sell the property and leave the state as quickly as possible. <laughs> it's that bad? No, no, no. It's actually not that bad. So it is challenging. Clearly, Kogan grass is one of the most challenging invasive grasses that we have here in, in Florida. And so, you know, when we're dealing with the landowner who's sort of facing a, a beginning Kogan grass problem like this, you know, there's, there's a number of different things we can point them to. Identification-wise, it can be confused uh, with a few natives. And so getting good identification is, is most important. Take a sample into your local cooperative extension office. They can really help you ID it. But there are some natives like silver beard grass, um, which is a common along the roadsides. There's also a few others such as uh, slender wood oats and broom sedge, uh, beaked panicum, and yellow Indian grass. All of these 
can be lookalikes with cogon grass, but none of them have the cylindric white rhizomes in abundance and of that shape uh, that cogon grass has. The flower heads are all extremely different for cogon grass, even though that's a tough one to use for identification because it only flowers for a couple of weeks a year. So you often miss that one. Uh, but overall, this, that really showy white fluffy cylindrical seed head um, is a real key for cogon grass and not much else looks like that. So how do we get started with helping this person control this plant? Because I don't know their level of expertise with herbicides. So are there biocontrol agents or anything like that that we can use to at least get started? Yeah, great question, Jay. So even before we go to that, the first thing I'm going to do is encourage any new landowner or any landowner like this to dig in and find out some information, learn a little bit about the biology of this plant, because you really need to understand what you're up against. University of Florida, IFAS has a number of good publications on cogon grass that really talk about its biology, talk about the problem of the below ground creeping stems called rhizomes. Every landowner needs to understand in dealing with cogon grass, they have to control the rhizomes to be successful for long-term cogon grass controls. So number one, get educated. Number two, first thing I'm going to say is do not do things that are going to promote its spread. And that actually may be some management tactics you try. Do not mow through patches of cogon grass that are flowering. That has been one of the primary ways that cogon has spread across the southeastern United States. So if you happen to catch it in flower, that's a terrible time to put a mower out there. And in general, mowing is very weak on cogon grass. It regrows rapidly from the rhizomes and just doesn't really provide any meaningful control. Now, you ask about other, other controls, Jay. I love biocontrol, and we recommend biological control every chance we get. Unfortunately for cogon grass, we don't have any good insects that feed specifically on cogon grass, none that have been released. I was afraid of that. Now, what about grazing animals? Will my cows eat it? Is it safe for my cows, for my horses? Cogon is not a poisonous plant. Cattle will graze it. Uh, horses will graze it. Um, but the plant is very high in silica, and it has very uh, sharp leaf edges that can cause mechanical injury for grazing animals. So bottom line is, yeah, you can get your animals to eat a little bit of it. They really don't like it. It's not that high quality when it's really old and rank, and they're not going to do well on it. And so we don't recommend sort of subjecting, uh, you know, our grazing animals to grazing cogon grass if we don't have to. Now, in a pasture situation, sometimes we do burn pastures here in Florida. Cogon grass is extremely pyrogenic, which means that when you light it up, it goes up in a conflagration. I'm telling you, we have seen some incredible fire lengths, flame lengths from cogon grass patches burning. It burns hot, it burns fast, and if you are burning it within trees that are surrounded or, or in that within the patch, you can actually get some tree mortality. The patches burn so hot. So we are very cautious about recommending prescribed fire as a cogon grass management tool especially when you've got pretty dense patches of it. Um, it doesn't control cogon grass. It simply removes the top growth. It resprouts from the rhizomes very quickly. So fire alone is not a standalone control tool. All right. So if you've got a whole bunch of plant biomass, all these old leaves are looking brown, one thing you could do is potentially burn it. If you can't burn it to remove some of that, if it's not seeding, I guess you could mow it, kind of reset everything so you can get yourself in a position where it'll be more susceptible to herbicides. Is that, is that right? You know, yeah, it's really a lot of these other tools. We tend to say they're sort of tools that sort of set you up for an herbicide application by getting rid of the thatch and the biomass and 
stimulating new growth so that you get a nice uniform canopy of kogon grass regrowth. Herbicides are the heavy hitter in terms of dealing with kogon grass long term. So how do they get started? Okay, so first and foremost, it's easy to get overwhelmed. And we have very few herbicide options that we can actually recommend for kogon grass. We basically have two. One is glyphosate and the other is a mazapir. Now, you mentioned trees, and it's really important to know what kind of trees you have out there because if it's oak trees, you absolutely can never use a mazapir underneath or near these trees. That is a soil residual herbicide that oak trees are very sensitive to, as are most trees. There's some tolerance within certain pine species, but we really look at that from a silvicultural perspective. And so for landowners, you know, you're not into, if you're not doing silviculture and you have oak trees or even a few longleaf or slash pines, uh, we're really hesitant about recommending a, a mazapir type treatments. So that really leaves glyphosate as an option. So what we're talking about here with glyphosate is spot treatments typically of small patches. And honestly, we're typically between a three to a 5% solution on a percent volume to volume basis for a glyphosate product. That's a pretty hot solution of glyphosate, but that's what it takes to really start killing the rhizomes. Now, a single treatment and walking away from it is the biggest mistake a landowner can make. Yeah, I've seen people do that a lot. Yeah, if you're going to spray one time, don't spray, okay? You're not going to make any long-term progress. So you've got to realize you're going to have to follow up with some treatments. It may be a treatment um, early summer, and you may actually have to hit it again the late fall that first year to the regrowth. And if not the first year, you're going to have to hit it the second year. And what we found is typically a couple of applications a year to actively growing new plants that are coming up from surviving rhizomes is what it takes to effectively kill the rhizome layer. A single application of glyphosate a year oftentimes does not work very well at all because the kogon grass regrows within that 12-month period and you really don't make any progress. All right. So what I'm hearing is be cautious about mowing it if it's in flower. There's really not good biocontrol options at this point. Uh, Fire can work, but herbicides are probably going to be a big part of the solution here. Glyphosate is a good option, particularly if you've got trees and other things around. But after you get started, you got to stay on top of it for a couple of years. So you're saying this is a two to three year commitment. But if you stay on the horse, you'll you'll eventually get there. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, Jay, absolutely. A two to three year commitment. I'd probably say expect maybe three to five years in some cases. The second part of that question was, are there any state programs to help pay for the removal? So we get this a lot. Hey, is there anyone who can help sort of help me deal with Kogon grass? Now, the answer is it's kind of hit and miss, but we do actually can we can refer you to a, a private landowner assistance database that has been created by the Florida Invasive Species Partnership. So it's now actually housed on the Florida Invasive Species Council's website at floridainvasives.org. Uh, O-R-G. And you can go there and you can check out the potential options. The Florida Forest Service has had some assistance programs in the past for landowners, especially for timber. Uh, NRCS has had some cost share programs, especially for conservation easements. And there are a few other programs listed there. These things are not permanent and they sort of, they may come and go, but it's a really good place to start in terms of seeing what resources are available. Sometimes even CISMAs, the Cooperative Invasive Species Management Areas, host work days and specifically go out and work on private landowners' uh, parcels of property and can actually maybe potentially provide some control um, in terms of folks working together 
uh, to uh, to manage even on private landowner property. Okay, so there is a lot here. And what I'm actually thinking is instead of calling this lady back, I think I'm just going to have Stephen call her back. There's a lot of pieces to this puzzle. So, uh, but Stephen, thank you for this information. We'll see if we can't uh, get this lady heading in the right direction. Absolutely, Jay. And as always, we strongly recommend that private landowners go directly to their local cooperative extension offices, talk to the Ag Natural Resource Agent, and they can literally have the same conversation with you. And if it's a really technical problem, they'll call me and I will get involved and uh, provide additional help to solve this issue. Thanks a lot. Excellent, man. Thanks for helping us today. All right. So, Christine, what was our third call? Yeah, so our third question relates to waterfront property owners, and it goes like. Hey, how's it going? I got a quick question. I live on a piece of property down in South Florida that's on a lake, and I uh, have a personal dock onto the water, but the cattails are getting pretty bad. They were nice and pretty when we first moved in, but they've grown so much that I can't even get my kayak into the water anymore. Um, Is there someone available to come and remove them? I really do miss being out on the kayak. Thank you. Bye. Oh, gosh. These calls about what to do with that water interface of the homeowner, I know there's a bunch of rules about it. And every time I try to remember what it is, I always forget and I have to have somebody explain it to me again. And unfortunately, Kelly has already explained this to me like three times. But let's see if we can't get her on the phone to walk through it again. So Kelly is one of our regional biologists. She used to work with FWC. She has dealt with this type of thing for years. So let's see if we can't get a hold of Kelly. Good morning. This is Kelly. Hey, Kelly. This is Jay. Hey, Jay. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. I was wondering, would you have time to explain to me again what happens and how do you manage weeds for a homeowner on a lake scenario? Sure. All right. So here's the situation. This person has got some lakefront property. They've got cattails growing up around the dock. They're having trouble accessing the water. So what can this person do? Because I know there's these jurisdiction issues about who owns what. Yes. Good questions. And I always have a million questions to follow up with that in order to answer it correctly because of all the rules and regulations that are out there. But in general, FWC is who is in charge of those particular rules, and they can either issue permits or if it's on a public water body, depending on where they're growing, they can remove them themselves or sometimes FWC will come in and do that. Um, But cattails are deemed a native plant. And so if somebody has an issue on their waterfront, they can either uh, remove it themselves or hire a contractor to come in and do that as well. Okay, so I'm not sure exactly where this person lives, but so let's just say it's state water, all right? So they would contact an FWC biologist first. Is that how they get this process going? Yeah, that's the easiest thing. They can also just go online. So all the permits are on the myfwc.com. So they can look it up online and start the process there. Uh, A lot of homeowners don't know the right herbicides to use or how to use them. And so the biologists are really there for their benefit as a resource. So a lot of times I'll tell homeowners, and it sounds like they don't really know what they're tackling. So um, having the biologists meet with them on their shoreline is the best thing because they will walk through how much they can remove, where they can remove it, 
you know, we really need to have shoreline plants for stabilization. Also for aesthetics, you know, the homeowner liked having some cattails, but now there's too many. Um, and that happens routinely. All right. So you just said they'll have to talk to FWC about how much can they remove. And I remember there is something about what percent of the shoreline or what what is that regulation? Yes. So the homeowner for access, it's called an access corridor. And they can remove either 50 feet or 50% of their shoreline, whichever is less. So if somebody has a 100-foot shoreline, they can have 50 feet that they can clear with no aquatic plants present. So that way they have access so they can put their kayaks in and they can let their dogs go swimming, um, you know, whatever they want to use their access for. And then the rest of the shoreline needs to remain vegetated, ideally with native plants. So a lot of times permits are issued to remove uh, non-native exotic species and then replant with native plants. It's very conservation oriented. Okay, so this question is about cattail. So, and you mentioned hand removal. How would somebody go in there and remove it? What what do they really need to be focusing on? And and are there plant parts that they really need to make sure they get out of there? For cattails specifically, there are rhizomes that it will regrow from. And that can be a real challenge depending on how mature those plants are. Um, So if they're young plants, it's probably easier to get in there and pull them out as you see them growing. But the mature stands are what's going to be regrowing with the rhizomes, um, and it takes a lot more work to get, maintain those. So that's where you were talking about the contractor. If it's one of these really mature stands and it's 100 feet of cattail, they're going to need something more than some sweat and labor, right? Correct. Yes. And herbicides are always an option, um, but you do have to have a permit through my FWC in order to use any kind of herbicides. So um They like to make sure that we regulate those to ensure that the right herbicide is being used on the right plant species in the right manner. Um, You know, we want to, and contractors, a lot of them are licensed applicators. So hiring them to come in, they can do a combination of either mechanical or chemical control uh, to help, you know, give access to the shoreline. All right. So let me, let me see if we can recap some of this so I can remember. All right. So, if you're on state water, you're going to have to have a permit, and you can go to my FWC website. You can find the permits. If you're kind of confused about what to do, you can always contact a biologist. And with that permitting process, you can do 50 feet wide or 50% of your shoreline, whichever is less. Is that what you told me? Yes, that is correct. And there are exemptions as well. So those are listed on their website. So a lot of times, um, and that's where it gets complicated. This is why I I have to call you every time we have this conversation, Kelly. Yep. So, um, but that's, you know, the exemptions are listed on the website. If you wanted to really get into it, it's under the 68F20 aquatic plant management permitting, and it will put you to sleep. So if you're having having a hard time sleeping at night, I recommend just logging in. But that's where all the rules are located in the exemptions. But don't go out and just start spraying before you've got permits in place and before there's a plan. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to have a plan in place. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, improving your water quality, improving your aesthetics. You know, that's something that you've invested in. So you want to make sure that you take care of the lakefront and the native habitat. So Kelly, is there anything else that we need to relate to this person? I would also encourage them, you know, again, referring them back to my FWC, but um, the permits are free. 
So, you know, it doesn't hurt to call and have them assist. You know, they definitely are a conservation organization, so they want to make sure everything is done the right way. Well, and I also appreciate you reminding us, we really do need some plants there. So we don't want this naked shoreline because it's just going to erode and we're going to end up in a situation we don't like. So we need to have access. We want access. But we also need to remember that some plants there are usually a really good thing. So thanks for reminding us of that. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Thanks for the, thanks for the call, Kelly. Appreciate it. All right. So, Christine, we got a lot of work to do, uh, returning some phone calls and trying to remember all of this stuff. But from your perspective, we, these are questions we get sometimes regularly as a communicator and as part of our communication team. We may want to think about how to get some of this information out. So what kind of stuck out to you that we may need to remember? Yeah, so for me, from Dr. Marble and Dr. Enlow, when it came to invasive plants, uh, terrestrial invasive plants that we find in our home landscapes or in our larger properties or in natural areas, get started by reaching out to UF IFAS Extension. Um, every county in the state has a local office who you can reach out to, natural resource agents that can connect you with experts like Dr. Marble or Dr. Enlow when you have these larger questions or not sure about a plant ID um, and where to get started with managing your invasive plant. And then when it comes to waterfront property owners, it can be really sort of a gray area of what can I what can I do? Who do I reach out to? And what plants should I be concerned about? And which ones am I supposed to leave? And so a great place to get started there is turning to your state management agency. And for Florida, that is the FWC. They have regional biologists who can let you know, hey, this is a private lake. Um, Take caution in what you choose to do with management. Oh, this is a state-owned um, water body, and we can assist you with submitting a permit and coming up with a plan. Um, but I think the real important part to know is that these waterfront areas are very sensitive and important ecological features that we have to have a plan in place before we start managing them. Yeah, and we just need to remember, if you have a question on these things, there are people that know. So we just talked to three experts that fortunately answered their phone for us, and they'll talk to you as well. So there's lots of information. So don't try to make up things as you go. Let's not do something you wish you hadn't. So there's experts in the room. So again, special thanks to the three that helped us today. Yeah, and we'll link a lot of the resources that they mentioned in their answers in the show notes of this episode. And yeah, I guess that rounds out today's phone a friend episode. Um, if you uh, have any more questions or ideas for the podcast, you can email us at caip at ifis.ufl.edu. That's cape at ifis.ufl.edu. And we always appreciate you all listening to these episodes and stay tuned for the next one as we continue to turn science into solutions. 